I wanted to jump into a Jesus parable this month. I have been sort of soaking up the parables of Jesus. Some of these are starting to come out in some of these sermons we've been airing. Um, I was blessed recently by a, a listener uh, of ours who sent me a book by Robert Farrar Capon, who was an Episcopal pastor back in the 80s. Um, Bible scholar, college professor, and he did a book on the parables of the kingdom, parables of grace, parables of judgment. And I've been just combing through them, and there's just been so many little moments that just jumped out at me and, and wouldn't let me go. And I would stay with me all week. And so I've been just digging around in these parables and watching what the Father is saying to me. I feel like in a lot of ways, my entire Christian life, and some of you are going to know, maybe all of you are going to know what I'm talking about, and maybe you feel the same way, has been one more journey of constant change, thinking I figured something out, maybe a theological principle, maybe a passage of scripture, maybe a biblical story, only to find that I didn't really get it. And then I get something, and I feel really good about it, and I keep going, and then I realize I didn't get much more, and then I get something else. And that this whole thing is just a journey of getting this and then getting that and realizing that that just adds to this. This doesn't get thrown out. It just gets fleshed out. I think that's called growing up. <laughs> I think that's called letting your experiences inform your life and then letting them shape your life. I feel like I've done that so much with the Bible where I read something and I go, ooh, yeah, this is what this means. I get up and preach it. And then I live for two years. And I go back to that and go, oh, hmm, hey, that, maybe this means this. And it doesn't mean what it meant two years ago was wrong, but it was really relevant to the Paul that was right there. And then this means something. And that, that's why the Bible doesn't bore me. I mean, I've been doing this over four decades, and the Bible's not boring to me at all. It's, in fact, it's more exciting now than it's ever been in my life, and I think it's because I got more... I've taken a little tread off the tires. You know, I got some miles on this thing. And you go, oh, I've been down this road before. Oh, I've seen that story. It looks different over in this book, but it's kind of the same thing. And you put those together and then you get a new, get not a new revelation, but it is to you, which is good enough. It's fresh. I've been doing that with the parables and I've been watching what happens as I land in different spots. But I'm trying to be careful I'm going to try to do this today as well. Try to be careful not to land in a different spot and bemoan the other spots and go, eh, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. But instead, to land in a different spot as a compliment to those other things. Like, let's take the prodigal son. The prodigal son is probably the most popular parable Jesus tells. Let's be honest. It's a great salvation story. You can use it in an invitation. You can use it in evangelism. You can use it in your day-to-day -day life. It, it ha it's applicable to the lost. It's applicable to the saved. It's applicable to moms and dads and kids and lives. And there's, there's a lot jammed into this little short story from Luke 15. And we've preached it every way you can possibly preach it. Um, I've went into it I don't know how many times. It's so popular, I compare the prodigal son to John 3.16. Two passages of the scripture that are too popular to preach. Like you don't ever go into a church and preach John 3.16. Because people think, oh, come on, you can come up with something else. John 3.16? I mean, there's got to be more to your repertoire than that. The prodigal son's kind of the same way. Like you don't walk into another church and preach the prodigal because they go, well, this has already been preached a thousand times. You can't just come in and preach that. So sometimes turning the soil over in those stories... 
we don't find anything new because we've turned it over so many times. Let me give you an example of some of the stuff we've done with the prodigal son, um, or at least that I've done with the prodigal son. For a long time, the prodigal son was a story about a sinner. What happens to, a, what happens to somebody when they go out and waste their life in sin and riotous living and harlots and all the other words that pop up in Luke 15. And you sin long enough that you grow accustomed to sin and you want to, and then you're slopping hogs and then you get so hungry out there in the world of sin that any old thing looks good. And, but none of it's good and it'll all kill you. And won't you come home where the father will meet you at the end of the lane and accept you as his son. And then we have an invitation and invite you to come meet Jesus. I'm not cutting that down. That's a, pretty, that's a pretty darn good rendering of what happens to the prodigal son. You could do a whole lot worse than telling people, hey, if you run out here and waste your life, you can come home to Jesus. But if that's all you get out of the prodigal son, well, you probably missed a whole lot of good stuff. Because as I got a little older, then I realized there was another brother in the story. There's an older brother in the backfields who's serving his father. And when the younger brother comes home, the older brother gets mad and doesn't want to go to the party. And then I started to realize that the older brother was pretty religious. And then I started to realize that the older brother looked a little bit like me. And then I could preach myself finally into the prodigal. Because for a long time, I didn't preach myself really into the prodigal. Because I didn't have that lifestyle of running away from God. So then I spent a long time preaching me into it and going, hey, there, you might be pointing at the world and all the people that are sinning out there, but you might be the one out here thinking you got to work for your father when all the while he accepts you into his house. And hey, you could do worse than that interpretation. Um, that's pretty solid. The older brother works and all he had to do was enjoy and he seems pretty religious. Um, then I, then I moved into a revelation of identity, and I started preaching the prodigal son as an identity issue. What's wrong with the younger brother? I believe I'll go home. He was one of my father's hired hands. You don't have to go home and be a servant. Go home and be a son. The problem with these two boys is neither one of them realizes that they're their father's son. One of them's out here in the hog pen thinking he needs to come home and be a servant. The other one's out here in the backyard thinking he is a servant, or at least working like he is one. And they both have identity problems. Not cutting that down. You could do a lot worse than landing on the end of the prodigal son and having an identity sermon. It's a great way to view these boys. Don't have an identity problem. You are one of the father's kids. Act like it. Pretty good spot. And then the last few years, it was joy and merriment for me because I started to see this as falling at the end of three parables. Parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, parable of the lost son. And in every one of them, they throw a party. They find the lost sheep, throw a party. Find the lost coin, throw a party. Find the lost son, throw a party. Sounds to me like joyful party grace atmosphere. And that's how I've preached the prodigal son for a while because it's an irrational grace. You don't leave 99 sheep and go find one. That's not good economics. What happens to the 99 sheep you leave while you're going out here finding one? That's craziness. But God does that so that he can bring us, the lost sheep, back into the fold. And then... He wastes all of his money throwing a party for that one sheep that was too crazy to stay in with the other sheep and walk out here by himself. And he goes and gets them and he throws a party for them. They go, that's irrational. And so I could preach an irrational grace. Or a woman who has all this money in her pouch, but she loses one coin. She tails the house upside down to find one coin. Couch cushions are flying. She's moving furniture. She finds the one coin. What does she do? She takes all the other coins and throws a party to celebrate finding her one coin. Doesn't make a lot of sense. You got... A hundred bucks, you lose a dollar, you find the dollar, you spend $99 on party favors so you can celebrate finding the one dollar. You go, this doesn't, this story doesn't make any sense. You go, well, the story must be about God irrationally loving the things he finds. 
because here's a dad throwing a party for a son. And listen, if you get to the end of the prodigal son and that's all you got, you could do worse because that'll preach, man, that God irrationally loves you and he's so excited that you come home that he throws a party on your behalf. But let's try again. All right, shall we? Let's turn the soil over one more time because I do believe there are some things that we can explore together as we revisit the prodigal son. Let's start by reading the first few verses. I want to break this down into segments. A few verses at a time. I want to watch some things happen and see where Jesus is taking both his audience then and his audience now and where we might land. Luke 15, 11. He said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered it all together, journeyed to a far country, and there he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. I'm reading the new King James. The old King James here says, wasted his substance on riotous living. One of the most famous New Testament King James version, uh, phrases in all of the Bible. He wasted his substance on riotous living. Um, the reason why the word prodigal shows up here probably is the New King James writers wanted to be a translation that actually used the word that people use to associate this story, which is prodigal. Um, but even then, the word prodigal in our 2,000 years of history has shifted. The word prodigal to us means someone who comes home after a long time away. That's, my, that's our prodigal kid. That's the kid that wandered, but he's come home. And in reality... The old English word for prodigal mean, meant waster, the one who wastes something. And so we call it the prodigal son because he's the son that wastes what he is given. But I want to show you that in this first portion of the story, something pretty remarkable happens on the part of the father that I've overlooked for a long time. The young man comes to his father and says, Father, would you give me my portion of the inheritance? But there's a Jewish problem in this story being told by a Jewish man to a Jewish audience, so a Jewish problem is applicable. If it's an American problem, who cares? We're not there. He doesn't talk to Americans. He's talking to Jews in the first century. So if there's a Jewish problem in the first century in the story, we need to know about it. Well, there is that almost always gets overlooked. Let me show it to you from Hebrews 9.16. Well, Hebrews is a book written to a bunch of Hebrews, right? They are Christians as well. But watch this verse from 16 and 17. Where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Take the word testament and insert will, like the last will and testament. If you draw up a will for your children, okay, put that kind of will in. Wherever there's a will, then there needs to be the death of the person who writes the will. So if I put you in my will, I need to die in order for you to receive whatever's in that will. For a will is only in force after men are dead. It doesn't have any power at all while the head of the will lives. Whoever's name is on the will must die in order for you to receive. Brian, can you go back to our text from Luke 15? 
And let's find out in here the Hebrew problem. A man has two sons. The younger says, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided them his, to them his livelihood. Our Jewish problem is the last phrase of the 12th verse. And every Jew standing there would have caught this. How do you divide your livelihood among your children? You can't. Because according to Hebrews 9, what has to happen in order for the will to go into effect? The head of the will has to die. So if you're a Hebrew listening to this story, what would you have heard in allegory? The father dies so that the kids can have their inheritance. So there is a blatant death at the beginning of the story of the prodigal son. And the death is on the part of the father. Now, you got to be allegorical. The whole story is allegorical. Jesus isn't telling a historic event. He's telling an event that means something. And so for his audience to go, if you're going to receive something from God that God has for you, then God has to sacrifice himself in order for you to receive it. And so what we're seeing in this story is something given on the part of the father into the life of the son. And what does the kid do? He takes it he gathers it together. He journeys to a far country. And Jesus wastes no time in this story. He just jumps straight to the problem. He wastes his possession with prodigal living or riotous living. Now, we're going to get the details as to what he does as the story unfolds. But remarkably, in the first three verses of this story, we've got almost all the information we need. And it, part of that information is that the father gave, had to die in order to give of himself. In other words, something of God has to be cut off from the son in order for the son to receive what it is that he's going to have. And then the son takes that that he got from his father and he goes out and he blows it. And so I want to show you a couple Greek words that will help get us started. The living or the livelihood that the father divided is one of the Greek words for life. So when the father gave his livelihood, what was he giving? The father was giving his life. The possessions or the substance that the boy wasted in the far off country is the Greek word for being. The father gave of his life and the son wasted his being. So the stuff they both gave away or wasted was their very being or the very essence of who they were. The father gave up the very essence of who he was and gave it to humanity who takes it off into the distance separating and isolating themselves from God so that they could waste the very being of who they are on things that had nothing to do with their father. I think this is what this looks like. God dies to totally possessing us. He totally holds us. We are his spirit and he is ours. But instead, he breathes into dust the life of God and he takes his hands off of us. And he allows us the choice of staying with him or leaving him. That's risky. That's what you do when you raise kids. It's risky. You got to take your hands off of them and let them go. And by the way, when you do, when you raise kids, you put a piece of you into your kids. Not only your DNA, but a little bit of who you are. And then they go out with that into the world and do something with it. It's why we say things like, go out there and make me proud. You're carrying a piece of me with you. So God dies to totally possessing us. He let us go at risk that we would sever relations with him and even deny that he exists. My question is, did humanity do this? 
when God gave us the breath of heaven, did we sever relations with him, deny that he ever exists and run from him? And the truth is, that's the human story. That's why we're so fascinated with Genesis. Because here's God breathing into a pile of dirt and the pile of dirt talks back. And we got about three good chapters. And then the pile of dirt runs. And then the whole Bible is God chasing that pile of dirt. Really, in essence. I mean, I know I'm, I know I'm summing it up awfully tight, but that's when you read the Bible, that's what's going on. It's, it's that pile of dirt with God's Spirit in it, running around and wasting its substance, wasting it on foolishness, wasting it on sin, whatever you want to insert here, running, running, running from God, wasting its substance on riotous living, prodigal living, the waster. Nietzsche called this, God is dead. I give you a pause because most of the time when Nietzsche is quoted here, we just say, philosophers of the world say God is dead. Philosophers of the world are wrong. God is alive. Okay. We're not wrong. I mean, philosophers of the world do say God is dead. Of course, God's not dead. But what if we were to put into context what Nietzsche said? Nietzsche actually said God is dead and we killed him. And now what are we going to do? That part never gets quoted or rarely gets quoted. So he, I, here, here's the shocker. I agree with Nietzsche in that God is dead to most people and they're the ones that killed him. They put themselves as the center of the universe. There's no need for God. And now that you've gotten rid of God, now what? Now what's the moral compass? Now what, is, what fills the vacuum? Because if God's not the center, who is? And you know who you're going to put in the middle? <laughs> you. And what happens when you get put in the middle? That's the story of the prodigal son. You'll waste your substance on riotous living. You'll do whatever it is that makes you happy. You'll spend up your life spending your life. You'll spend up your life for joy, for pleasure, for fun, for meaning, for success, for happiness, for whatever it is until the story gets to its darkest, deepest, most depressing moment where you're slopping hogs in a pig pen and even the food the pigs eat look good because you're starving to death. So it's Nothing but a poverty-ridden lifestyle in a run, in a dead sprint away from the Father, who, by the way, gave of himself so that you could run from him. Gave of himself so that humanity could go, eh, we don't need you. And then take off and dominate the planet. Dominate it not because you're stronger than a bear, not because you're more subtle than a snake. Not because you are, you can fly higher than an eagle. Just dominate it for one simple reason. Because God gave you His Spirit. And in His Spirit, everything answers to God. And therefore, man is at the highest part of the food chain. Man is at the power hierarchy. And how did we get that? We got it when He breathed His life-giving Spirit into man. And what did we do with it? We ran into a far country and we wasted our substance on riotous living. And we killed God. Because we don't need Him. So the answer, I don't have the answer, but the, the question is worth wrestling with. God is dead and we killed him. Now what? I don't know what. Because once we're done with God, what's left but slopping the hogs of the world, slopping the very bottom of the barrel? The son dies as well because he's left with nothing. That's death, by the way. When you get to the end, so when you die in the natural realm, you don't get to take your stuff with you. So you don't get to take your money. We all know this. 
this isn't a shocker, but we don't get to take our body. We don't get to take our brain. We don't get to take anything we have here. So in effect, death is the absolute end of everything. It's where everything else totals out to nothing. When you, when you, when the heart stops beating and you draw your last breath, what really happens is that the ledger drops immediately, immediately to nothing left. No money, no possessions, no wealth, no power, no good looks, no smarts, no intelligence, no knowledge, no memory, nothing left. So when you get a biblical character who gets to nothing, you're getting an allegory for death. They have nothing. So when the younger brother gets down in the dumps to nothing, he has nothing left. He has completely died. The son has died, left with nothing, or as Paul would say, dead in sins and trespasses. I want to read you into Paul's by starting Back at the prodigal son, Luke 15, 14. When he had spent everything, there arose a severe famine in the land and he began to be in want. Watch him go. He's going down. This is the spiral. Maybe this will help. Don't look at the prodigal son as an individual. Look at the, product of, look at the prodigal son as humanity. God gives, pulls out of himself and drops it into humanity. To do that, a piece of God has to die. I'm being metaphoric, of course. What has to die is God's supreme power to make you do whatever he wants you to do. He severs that. He takes his hands off of it. He dies to the supreme position of you're going to do what I tell you to do. Instead, he gives that up. That's a big surrender. That's big power. Par parents, we have trouble with that. We have trouble going, oh yeah, go on out there. Do your thing. No, we're helicoptering. You know, we're hovering right over to make sure nothing gets, nothing's hurt, no one good, nothing goes wrong. And we won't just do that when you're 8 or 10 or 15. We'll do that when you're 25 or 30 or 40. We're going to make sure nothing goes wrong. You know, make sure everything's good. Imagine God taking his hands off and going, I'm here, but you're on your own. You want to run for me? You can run. That's huge. Okay? Younger brother then isn't a kid. He's not the guy out here sinning. Get, let's stop. Let's get that out of our head in this version of the prodigal son. It's humanity running from God, making the choice to go try it on their own. And what happens to humanity? And don't kid yourself. We've seen this repeated generationally. Spends it all. Here comes a famine. He begins to be in want. He goes and joins himself to a citizen of that country because, hey, two knuckleheads are better than one, right? So if you get in trouble, go join yourself to the system of the world. It's the best thing you got going. You, don't, you can't go home to your father. You've got to go home to somewhere. You join yourself to a citizen of that country who sends him into his fields to feed swine. This is the lowest thing Jesus could have come up with because he's talking to a Jewish audience who don't touch pigs. And so in his genius telling of this story, he chooses the very bottom of the barrel. He goes, what would happen if you fell to the very, very, very bottom of the barrel? If you did, we would lose the text if you fell to the bottom of the barrel. Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3. You he made alive. Here's the key phrase. See, see the younger brother. See the prodigal. You who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. How can the dead walk? And so Paul's definitely allegorical. You have someone who is spiritually dead, but is still walking around. Where are they walking? In the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. Paul could have preached half the prodigal sermon, son sermon. You who were dead, who had attached yourself to a citizen of that country, who had wasted your substance on riotous living, who was down to slopping the hogs with a spirit that works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, 
fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. All of us, not just the prodigal son, not just the guy on your street, all of us who were by nature children of the flesh. We were products of the flesh. We had taken what God gave us and ran out until we had got to the bottom of the barrel and died. That takes you back to the prodigal story from Luke 15, 17. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will rise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I want to pause before 19 because 19 is where I've I've often landed on this is the part he should have left out. Because when you preach this as an identity, you go, oh, he shouldn't say this about himself. But I I want to flip that coin today. Instead of this being the part he should have left out, I want to present to you that this is the part that is his salvation. This is where it starts. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Period. Make me like one of your hired servants. I'm going to get into that in a second. That's superfluous. That's us trying to pay God back. Make me one of your hired servants. We'll leave that alone. In fact, the father cuts him off before he can even get that word out of his mouth. The father doesn't even let him get to make me one of your hired servants. Because that's us adding to. But the power of this kid's moment is found in, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Repentance. And he rose, I'm sorry. He, he rose and came to his father when he was still a great way off. His father saw him, had compassion, ran, fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, period. End of quote. He doesn't get to say the whole part about servant. I don't get to do what I want to do. Think about this. Repentance is mind change? Yes. And it's often mind change in a broad spectrum. That's why we go, church, you need to repent because you need to change your mind about God, right? Repentance as a condition of salvation is the ultimate realization. Not that we are guilty. Not that we are at fault. But that we are dead. Father, I am no more, no more worthy to be called your son. The boy is right. He's dead. And the father says so. My son who was dead, has come home. Agree with God. What is confession? Homologia. Say the same thing God says. What's the father say about his son? My son was dead, and he has come home. What should the son say about himself? I'm dead. Repentance is turning around, changing your mind, We could say it about a broad amount of things in theology, but when it comes to our salvation, repentance is not lying in the floor, feeling bad, admitting guilt. Repentance is the acknowledgement that you have no life without him, that you are truly dead, that you have nothing to affect eternity going on inside of you. When you get to that place, that's repentance. That's the confession God is looking for. That's the son running home, running up the lane to see his father. That's the mind change we all need. Luke 15, 22, the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. Let's eat and be merry. This, my son, was dead and is alive again. Was he actually dead? Well, not according to the story. 
But I tried to tell you before, it's all allegorical. That's why the father's talking this way. Listen, it's not he was dead to me. He was dead. He's always been alive in my heart. But he was dead. He ran away from me. And he wasted his, the very essence of who he is, he wasted it on other things. And in that he was dead. But my son was dead. He's alive again. He was lost. He is found. And they all begin to be merry. Let's talk confession. Confession is not getting forgiveness. Confession is waking up to the forgiveness that is already ours. The young man knew in the hog pen he had a dad somewhere. He just had to go find him. I believe I'll go home and be as one of my father's hard hands. I'm not one of my dad's kids anymore. I'm dead to that, but I know he'll take me back. I'm not who I could be. I'm not who I should be, but I believe he'll take me back because he's a forgiving father. He's a loving God. Confession is not getting it. Confession is waking up to it being ours. And the fatted calf has died. I put in parentheses Jesus because there's a third death in this story. The father died to his control over the son in the beginning of the story. The son died out slopping hogs. And when he gets home, the fatted calf dies because Jesus is our way back home. Don't miss this part of the story. Jesus, you don't come to God on principles. It's not enough. You're not slopping hogs going, you know, there's a better way. There's a, there's a higher form of living called Christianity. I think I'll plug that into my life. People worry about this. Like, you know, what if people come to Jesus, but they still think they can live in the hog pen? It's impossible to come back home and live in the hog pen. That's the point of the story. The hog pen is when you're dead. But when you come back home, you've come alive in Christ. See, Christianity is not a system of principles and ideas. It's death and resurrection. When you come to Jesus, you didn't ascend to a higher level of thinking. Here's why, here's why a lot of people are disappointed ultimately with Christianity. It's because they thought they had found a higher level of thinking, a cleaner form of living. They dress a little fancier. They talk a little cleaner. They act a little better. They don't cheat as much. The lion goes down. Principles go up. Morality, rising tide raises all boats. Everything around them. Life's supposed to be getting better. They get a little dis you're eventually going to get disillusioned with that because there's no real admission that you're dead and need to be resurrected in Christ. To come back to the, to come to the Father is to meet the fatted calf. There is no party without a fatted calf. There is no resurrection without a dead Jesus. Christ must die and then be resurrected in us. And so that resurrect, the fatted calf dies, that's Jesus, so that we can celebrate our Father's love. And then we feast together with our Father. We don't feast without Him. We feast with Him. And where? At what Revelation calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. And you're eating the fatted calf. In other words, you are constantly dining on the finished work of Christ. What are they eating at the party? The very thing that they paid, that paid for their soul. What are we eating when we come into the body of Christ? The body of Christ. What are we eating when we take communion together? The body and the blood of our Lord Jesus. We take it in a, in a literal sense, but we're still we're taking it all the time. When we come in and we allow Him to be the centerpiece of what it is that we do. So we feast together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are forgiven. We are alive. He who was dead is alive. So coming to Christ is first coming to the confession that you are dead. 
It's first coming to the confession that you have nothing to offer. I think it's important we don't skip this step. We want people to know that the life provided to them in Christ is real. But I think if we give people principles to get them to follow Jesus, I think it's why we're creating a church full of elder brothers. Because we're giving them high morality. We're giving them codes. Hey, come to Jesus. If everybody would come to Jesus, look what would happen in our society. We're not wrong, like as far as moral codes go. But let me ask you, are moral codes making people live right? And if you, if you don't know the answer to that, just take a look at most churches where moral code, moral code, moral code is preached. Hang out long enough, somebody falls. Well, what was up with your moral code? You go, oh, bunch of hypocrites. No, it's just that moral codes don't change people. It doesn't make them different. It just makes them fake until you figure out they're not different. And it doesn't mean they're not trying, because we try. Elder brothers try. They work really hard in the backyard, working for God, working for Dad. But until they come to the place where they know that they're dead, until they come to the place where there's an admission that there's a failure, then nothing really changes. And so let's read about the encounter of the father with the older brother. The older son is in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. What a father. So the elder brother won't go into the party and celebrate the life that comes when you come home. So the father takes the step he doesn't have to take. This is, this is something about our God. He takes the step he doesn't have to take, and he walks out of his own party because he's never met someone he won't go try and rescue. Sometimes we think, when we think about the lost sheep, two stories in front of this. There's a man with 100 sheep. One of them wanders away, 99 stay. He goes and finds the one. How many of you, when you hear that story, you always imagine that the one sheep's the center, the lost person, like the guy that's out here living like the devil, and the Lord goes to rescue him? What if the one, because in the prodigal son, which is a qualifier of the 99 story, the father doesn't leave the house to go to the pig pen to find the prodigal son. The father leaves the house to go find the elder brother. What if the one the father chases is the one that refuses to get in line with the party? Maybe the one that's wandering from the 100 isn't wandering into sin. He's wandering into a high moralism of isolation. He's just better than the other 99. He's figured out the right way around the mountain. Those other 99 sheeples can follow all they want to. But the truth is, is that I've got to figure it out out here. I know what's going on. And what does God do? Instead of going, you know what? Stay out there and kill yourself. I don't care. That's not your father. He leaves those 99 in there having a party where it's way more fun because anybody would rather be in a party with 99 than out here wandering with some snot-nosed, pride-stricken, mad kid in the backyard who's whining that it didn't go his way. You ever been a parent at a birthday party? You want to go deal with the kid that ain't having fun? That's a real blast. I bought all the cupcakes for this. 
you go out and mess with this kid, and that's exactly what dad does. He goes out and messes with this kid who just can't seem to find a way to get excited. The kid's angry. He wouldn't go in the house. He's out throwing a fit, so dad comes out and pleads with him. That's a father that's sort of at the end, man. He's going, I'm begging you. I'll give you two cupcakes if you just get in the party I did this whole thing. What's the problem? Why can't you be excited? Why aren't you happy? Now you're about to get the whole point of the prodigal son story. Because you're about to see the biggest difference between the younger brother and the older brother. And I got news for you. It's not sin. We all think everything's sin. What's the biggest difference in a sinner and a Christian? The sinner lives in sin. Christian sins occasionally, but the sinner lives in sin. We love that stupidity. No. That is not the difference in the, in the younger brother and the older brother of, where, of one lives in perpetual sin and the other doesn't. Watch as it unfolds. Because this is the kid talking to his dad. So he answered and said to his father. So it all comes to a head. Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a, even a young goat. The, the Greek here is you never even gave me a sick baby goat to throw a party with. And yet, that I might make merry with my friends, but as soon as this son of yours, not my brother, by the way, (laughs) as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots. This is a fascinating drop right here by the older brother, because there's not a single mention of harlots in the first story. So where did this harlot rumor get to the older brother? I think our accusations of the world reveal more about us than they do about the world. Anytime you hear preaching, teaching that fires away at what's going on in the world, just look at the far side of that gun. The guy pulling the trigger is pulling the trigger on stuff he's dealing with. Almost every time. And I've been in ministry, I've been around ministers literally my entire life. And I can tell you, What's getting hammered is what's being dealt with behind the curtain. And so this young man's got a lot of issues. This is one of them. What he thinks is somebody else's issue. He wastes his substance with harlots and then you killed the fatted calf for him. What a text. And so the father says, watch, son, you're always with me. All that I have is yours. But it was right that we should make Mary be glad. Your brother was dead and is alive again. Your brother was lost and is found. What's the difference in the older brother and the younger brother? And it's the simple truth of salvation. The father pleads with the older brother, but it doesn't work because grace only works on the dead. The older brother clings to the life he has created and the life he has created will not allow him to make merry. And the father brings the one thing he has, which is his grace. And if you hold on to who you are, you can't have it. And that's the older brother. Your brother was dead. He was dead. But you've never died. Your issue my son, is that you've never let go. You've always held on to your high standards and your high moralities and your codes. You've always held on to your religion and your way of thinking and you feel like it makes you somebody. And all it really makes you is hateful and snotty. And I'm out here in the middle of what should be a really good party and I'm talking to you about 
this because no one's meeting your standards. The issue with the older brother is that he doesn't know what it's like to let go and die out to himself. And when confronted with grace, all he does in the face of grace is prop up everything he's doing in life. I do this, and I do this, and I do this. Oh, by the way, I don't do this, and I don't do this. Now what do you got to say, Dad? And Dad says, Son, you've always been here. Maybe that's the problem. Now, I think sometimes we're scared to do this right here because we're afraid that what this sounds like is that what everybody needs to do is go slop hogs for a little while. That if you went and slopped hogs, then you'd really understand grace. But that's missing the point of the story. The point of the story is that the younger brother went and died. He died to everything and was left with going to his father. That's all he had left. I believe I'll go home. (laughs) Dad'll take me. And the moment that the father saw him coming up the lane, he effectively saw a corpse coming up the lane. The shell of a man. And what does he do with that shell? He puts shoes on it and a ring on it and a robe on it and he kills a fat cat because he's got to dress it in brand new clothes. He has to bring it back to life. He can't just take the dead. He has to make him living. He has to put part of himself onto that kid because it's not that you've added a little Jesus to your sin and that's why you're a Christian. It's that you died and your life is hid with Christ in God. And you came to Christ, the old you gone forever and the new you covered over in new shoes and a new ring and a new robe and a new name and you get to feast at dad's table as long as you'd like to. And when I say a lot of us are the older brother, for a long time what I meant was that we're religious or that we don't have the identity of sons any more than our younger brother does. We can't be excited about grace, but my eyes are opening to maybe it being this way. A lot of us are often the older brother in that we just won't let everything we hold on to go. And when dad comes and goes, hey, there's a party going on. You want in on it? We tell God why the party should have been thrown in our favor. And dad goes, you just don't get it, do you? You know why we're excited? Your brother was dead and he's alive. You want to know grace? Die. Not really. None of the characters really died. Not even the younger brother. But the father said he did because that's the key. The older brother clings to a life he created. Because he clings to the life he created, he cannot make merry. Here's the biblical principle as to why. James 4, 6. He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It's James's way of saying, you want to know God's grace? You're going to have to let go of being you. You're going to have to let go of the stuff you know. Because when you hold on to the things you know, there's nothing left that God can hand you. There's nothing left that God can hand over to you. So... Die to your own ideas of life. This is just me talking here. Die to your own ideas of life. Get in the Father's house and pour yourself a drink. Feast on His love and His goodness. To do that, you've got to let go of what it means to be the best kid in the field. I, I still see the prodigal as a good, good example of sin. Good example of what it means to get saved. Still see this as a good story of identity. But man, to see it as a story of 
three deaths and a rejection. You know, God taking his hands off of us and letting us run and we run and what does it do? It kills us. And we come back and Jesus dies on our behalf. And the party that heaven has is outstanding. And yet there will always be someone who refuses to come to the party of the kingdom because they refuse to let go of who they are. I don't know what eternity looks like, but I've got a feeling that even in eternity, there will be someone who refuses to let go of who they are. There will be someone in eternity that refuses to let go of their way. They refuse to let go of their thoughts. And maybe their, their eternity will end the way the prodigal story ends. We don't know what happens to the older brother. We don't know what happens after that speech, but we don't see him come into the party. We see him have the opportunity, and that's the best we have is the opportunity to come into the party. All of you who met Jesus met him because at some point you realized your own spiritual inefficiency, your hopelessness, and your death. But I want to make a guess right here. And it might not be to this room, but it's probably to at least somebody watching. Some of you came to Jesus for one of a thousand reasons, and none of them was your own spiritual death. It was just the right moral thing to do. It was the way to get to heaven. It was because mom and dad were already Christians, not Muslims. So you happen to be a Christian. And you spent years like the older brother, living in the house, but not throwing a party because you never realized what it meant to die and resurrect in your father's love. And there might still be someone watching who's very Christian. You got all kinds of Bibles, maybe even all kinds of degrees, but you've never been to the bottom of your own spiritual barrel where you realized that you were dead indeed in your sins and your trespasses. And until you get there, you're just the older brother out in the field. You're working, but you're not celebrating. You will yell, but I'll go to heaven. And that's why you came to Jesus? And, and some people would say, yeah, that's exactly why I came to Jesus. But the merriment is the life that's been designed for you. And I don't mean fun and total excitement. That's not merriment, but it's reveling in your father's love. It's being resurrected in the father's house. It's eating that marriage supper of the lamb. It's knowing that the robe is on your back and the shoes are on your feet and the ring is on your finger, that you belong to something. And so if it's been you and you've done the elder brother thing long enough, you don't have to go slop hogs of sin to get to the bottom of the barrel, but you might need to realize that it's only when we realize that we are dead indeed in our sins and our trespasses does he make us alive in Christ. That's coming to Jesus. Do you know why we baptize in water? Literally. Why do we do it? You go, well, because it's just what we do. It's what Christians do. No, we have an actual reason in the church for baptizing in water. And the reason is because Christ goes into death and comes out a new man. He did that one time. He's not going to do it two times, three times, ten times. One time. So every one of us that accept Christ go into his death, which means we go into everything he died for, and we come out in his resurrection. That means if you go out and sin after your baptism... The forgiveness for the sin you committed after your baptism was given to you when Jesus died on the cross and you entered into it in your baptism. You come out of the grave walking in everything you need because one thing, you died and your life is hid with Christ and God. Because you died, now you get to live. 
And that life never ends. That, that's the life we're, we're mining out when we read the Word. And we're living out among each other. Laying down what we were so that we can be who He would have us to be. And that's why we do it. For a very similar reason why we take the sacrament of the body and the blood. Because we participate actively in the fact that His body was broken for me and that His blood was shed for me. Prodigal re-visited for me. I still don't know where I'll be with this in five years or ten years. But I know that over the last few, I've had to re-examine so much about what it meant to follow Jesus. And I'll stop with this. I've had to re-examine so much about what it meant to follow Jesus that I feel like I've wandered out into my own recognition of death a few times over the last few years and come up in a fresh newness of life and then wandered back down into, not wandered out here and sinned, but went down into, I'm dead. Raise me up in you. I'm dead to that way of thinking. I'm dead to that old me. I'm dead to that old thought. Raise me up in you, a newness of life. And I think you are too. I think that's the joy of this journey. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word and, and what I think you, you are doing in it and what you've done in it. And for who, those who will hear it, see it, may Father it be fresh water. I don't want a Christianity that raises my moral standards only. I want a discipleship that takes my life and hides it in Jesus. And out of that, I get to start to look more like him. That's better. Show us all of those areas where we're the older brother outside the party and all of those areas where we still need to see our own death in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.